And when I was in Indonesia, I went and visited this volcano. It was an active volcano. I stood on the rim of it. And at the time I was reading a lot about solar geoengineering. Solar geoengineering is this idea of deliberately altering Earth's climate at a planetary scale to counteract the effects of climate change. So there was a volcano that erupted, I think in 1991 in the Philippines called Mount Pinatubo that ejected a lot of sulfate into the atmosphere, which reflected sunlight and cooled the planet. And it cooled it like a degree or so. And I was standing on this volcano and it was just shaking violently. It really like shakes you to your core. And it was quite like a visceral realization that, holy shit, humans are trying to replicate this power, right? In this episode of The Warden Current, host Nehani Jain and Ned Downey sit down with Alex LaPlaza, partner at Lower Carbon Capital. Join us as we talk about venture investing in climate tech, solutions for climate-affected regions with an emphasis on developing geographies, and careers in climate. All right, welcome everybody. This is Ned Downey. This is your host of the Wharton Current Podcast. I'm joined by Nahali Jane, who's my co-host. She's a second year at Wharton, and she's co-president of the Sustainable Business Club. Thanks, Ned. We have a wonderful episode today with a fantastic guest. I'm sure this session will leave all of us with food for thought and inspiration to take action. We're thrilled to have Alex LaPlaza with us today. Alex is a partner at Lower Carbon Capital. Lower Carbon is a VC fund that invests in kick-ass companies that make real money slashing carbon dioxide emissions, taking carbon out of the sky, and buying us precious time to save this planet. Alex has worked across Belgium, Indonesia, India, and the U.S. He is a Fulbright Scholar and studied international policy, specializing in energy and environment from Stanford. Welcome to the Wharton Current, Alex. Thanks for having me. Alex, as you know, many of our listeners are business professionals who are starting to think about getting into the climate, integrating it into their work. So we would love to hear more about your foray into climate and what made you sure that this was not just something that you'd want to think about on the side. Yeah, I actually consider myself a climate person first and a, and a VC second. I, I came to VC as someone who had been in climate and just recognized VC as a tool to scale technology solutions. You know, some of the biggest and fastest growing companies in the world were built with with venture capitalist models. So I thought it would be interesting to, to explore using it to, to scale and deploy meaningful climate solutions. But to your question of how I first got into climate, it actually started when I was an undergrad. I'd kind of always been interested, you know, one of those guys that saw an inconvenient truth in high school and piqued my interest back then, but really wasn't fully into, into the climate space, like drinking the Kool-Aid, let's say. I spent the summer in Uganda as an undergrad. At the time, I was both interested in international development, and I went to Uganda with a fandom opportunity that a friend put in front of me to work at a, a school in rural Uganda. And there, they had just installed a water pump halfway through my time there, and I saw how it increased participation. And so it kind of clicked in my head how deeply intertwined questions of economic development and well-being are with environmental conditions, like food and water security. So that kind of set me off the environmental path. It led me to do a Fulbright, as you mentioned, in Indonesia, where I was focused on food and water security. And there in Indonesia, I was working on a little island where they were just 
deforesting their forest and as a result rivers were drying up in the dry season and then flooding in the rainy season so from there i was like okay it's an energy issue if they had access to energy then they wouldn't deforest for fuel wood and then they would have a little more resilience it felt kind of like the front lines of, of climate because they're really suffering from, from droughts and floods and from that point i realized you know climate is the issue that touches everything it's the one challenge that accelerates all other risks is kind of like a threat multiplier. And so I felt like a important place to work or important topic to work on for, for the rest of my career. And that's what I tell people. It's like, it, it touches everything. And so there's a way, any issue that you have, it's a good chance that climate change will make it worse. And so that's why it's honestly an exciting, it makes it an exciting place to work. It's going to be quite meaningful because the reverse is true, right? If you can make a difference with climate change, then you also are ameliorating Quite a few challenges. Awesome. Thanks for that. And it, I think one of the things that you talked about is your background, the role that you had experiencing climate impacts in the developing world and coming to get interested in climate related issues. How does that shape how you think about working on climate these days, whether that's engaging on adaptation issues more or looking at different kinds of solutions? What's that background meant for the work you do now? Yeah, it's pretty foundational in my work today. I think in, in two primary ways. The, the first is perspective. Obviously, you see places like some places I've been in India, Indonesia, you know, these are some of the largest populations in the world, the second and fourth, respectively. And so you go there and you realize these are, these are people and, and societies and communities that have very little responsibility for, for the challenge of climate change, but are going to bear the brunt. They're going to be disproportionately impacted. And so, as you said, it makes me think a lot about adaptation as well, but also just seeing them and how they're developing and recognizing that decarbonization solutions will also need to be deployed in these markets and, and they need to be scalable. So the first way is just perspective around scales. It needs to be scalable widely across various markets, but also vertically in terms of the number of people it touches. But more importantly, those experiences have really led me to see the opportunity. You know, like I said, these are the largest populations and some of these are the fastest growing economies in the world. And so these are markets where technology can be adopted super quickly. Think about telecommunications and about fintech. And I think it's because they don't, they often don't have the same entrenched industries in these kind of ossified incentive structures as some of the more developed markets like the US or Europe. Um, and so from a climate perspective and from the, in the context of deploying climate solutions, it often means you can, you can deploy solutions much more quickly and often you align incentives far more easily. So take India, for example, you know, clean energy is a really practical and exciting solution. And it's one of the fastest growing renewable energy market in the world. It's just a pure self-interest. They don't have a responsibility to adopt clean energy to the world because of climate change, because they're share of greenhouse gas emissions cumulatively has been little, but it just makes sense for them. Their energy demand is soaring. They're going to need to add like an EU-sized grid to their grid in the next few decades. And clean energy is just the cheapest form of energy. And it just so happens to not choke their cities with pollution. It helps them enhance their energy security. And it's just pure economic sense. And so seeing those markets and seeing how these opportunities can scale in those markets really informs how I invest today, the kind of opportunities I look for. And Fortunately, my team has been pretty receptive and uh, we do quite a bit investing in those markets. Alex, it's super interesting to hear how your journey evolved across these markets and they sort of define where you want to invest. In this journey, was there ever a aha or a eureka moment where you 
you know, suddenly thought that, okay, this is my passion and this is what I want to do, or was it more of a journey? And we asked this question because in our generation, this question around what's your passion, discover your passion and work on that. That's a big one. So we would love to understand how was it for you? Yeah, there's probably been a few of those. I mentioned one with the water pump at the school in Uganda, also in Indonesia, and recognizing how climate change is just this threat multiplier and, and risk accelerant. But probably, I think the most formative one that I had was one, it's kind of a funky one. I, when I was in Indonesia, I went and visited this volcano. It was an active volcano. I stood on the rim of it. And at the time, I was reading a lot about solar geoengineering. And in solar geoengineering, so for folks that don't know, solar geoengineering is this idea of deliberately altering Earth's climate at a planetary scale to counteract the effects of climate change. So it's things like reducing the amount of sunlight that hits the atmosphere so that you can cool the atmosphere and kind of offset some of the warming. Really controversial, really complex, but at the time I was reading a lot about it and specifically that volcanoes were kind of looked at as this analog for solar geoengineering. Specifically, there was a volcano that erupted, I think in 1991 in the Philippines called Mount Pinatubo that ejected a lot of sulfate into the atmosphere, which reflected sunlight and cooled the planet. And it cooled it like a degree or so. And I was standing on this volcano and it was just shaking violently. It really like shakes you to your core. And it was quite like a visceral realization that holy shit humans are trying to replicate this power right this powerful volcano that's literally shaking me physically very violently and we think we can not only replicate the power that it could have over the atmosphere but do quite a bit more and so that was a moment in i think the journey that was was pretty profound in terms of understanding the human imprint and potential on our climate systems kind of a funky one Love it. Love it. Man, that is an image. I've never stood on the rim of a volcano before, but I didn't really realize that they would shake like that. I guess that makes sense. Yeah, they're pretty intense. Yeah. Wow. So you're lower carbon now. You went from your volcano to lower carbon. There were maybe some steps in between, but let's talk lower carbon now. You guys have a very distinctive public presence, the way that you talk, kick-ass companies, that kind of language getting down into how you guys actually operate, what makes you all different from other VCs? Yeah, I think what makes us different is pretty foundational to the way we invest. And typically the way that we do invest is in one of three buckets. We invest in technologies, teams, or solutions to either slash greenhouse gas emissions. So any kind of greenhouse gas abating technology solution, whether it be an industry, power, transportation, food and ag. So long as it is having an impact at scale, we also have quite a bit of focus on carbon removal. So negative emissions, technology ranging from nature bit to more technological like direct air capture. And and lastly, if one or two don't work quickly enough, which you know we are far from, we invest in solutions that buy more time for people and ecosystems on the front line. So and you know, think of any solutions that enhance adaptation or resilience. And so I think that alone makes us quite distinct from typically a lot of VC funds being so focused on climate. And it also makes us more quite a bit different from impact funds. You know, we don't consider ourselves an impact fund. We just think that the way to have an impact is to create a lot of value by offering products that people want, not because they're clean, but just because they're better, faster, cheaper, stronger than what's out there today. You know, it's great that people use solar or EVs because they want to reduce their footprint, but most people just buy them because it's cheaper and a better experience than what they, they had 
before. And so that's kind of our thesis. And I think it's, it's quite a distinct one. Yeah. It sounds like the kind of sectors that you invest in seems like a different risk profile. And to me, it seems more riskier because most of these ideas are new ideas. Is there anything specific that Lower Carbon has done to structure the fund around this risk profile? Yeah, I would say investments we make are very risky. I think we kind of lean into risk. And there's a few reasons for that. First being that generally we think the risks of inaction on climate are just far greater than the risks of a poor performing fund, right? If, if so many investments broadly in the future will be futile, if our food systems collapse, if the fabric of society starts to fray. But more importantly, I think we've structured the fund because the way we have, because we're driven by what we see as the potential to create and capture a lot of value. You know, you believe, as we do, that decarbonization is inevitable, then it's a less a matter of if and more a matter of when the global economy decarbonizes, then that requires a fundamental transformation of, of every major sector of the economy. And in each transformation, there's a multitude of opportunities for value creation. You know, we've seen the economic opportunity of the electrification of motor vehicles, for example, some of the biggest car companies in the world are now purely electric vehicle companies. So take that example and expand it and apply it across all the other major industries in the world. So that's our framing. And as a result, the way that we structure our risk profile is just going after those large, big opportunities. Uh, We think that the physics of global warming or climate change are such that mitigation, removal, adaptation, it's the progress is largely going to come into in real build out, right? Real infrastructure, steel on the ground, big, big projects. And so we focus a lot on hardware and deep tech and hard science. because We think that's where a lot of the emissions reductions will come. That's not to say we, we don't focus on software. We invest quite a bit on software, but often we think some of the solutions just eat at the margins rather than solve root problems. So in summary, it's risky, but we kind of embrace the risk because the payout is quite large. And in the sense of venture capital, it's going after those tail end events that make it all worth it. And in climate, to do that, you have to go for the hard stuff. And speaking for going for the hard stuff, one of the more prominent announcements you guys made was about 350 million fund for carbon removal startups. So tell our listeners why carbon removal and what's not just the climate case for it, but also the business case for it. Yeah, that fund was built out of the recognition that if we zeroed out emissions tomorrow, we'd still be left with quite a bit of warming for centuries, if not millennia. You know, carbon's going to stick around the atmosphere quite a bit, and we're going to have warming for quite a while. And any level of warming above pre-industrial levels means suffering. And so it was out of recognition of all the science that says not only do we need to zero out emissions, but we need to go net negative in order for the climate to stabilize. And so that's the scientific case for carbon removal. But when you take that and a step further, that's where you see the business case. And so if if you believe we need to go net negative, that means removing billions of tons of CO2 from the atmosphere and at the prices that people are shooting for, so anywhere $100 per ton and below, that equates to trillions of dollars of spend. Investors tend to like markets that start with the T. So the business case is removing billions of tons from the atmosphere and doing so profitably. Following up on that, need long-term for this enormous volumes of carbon removal. How do you guys think about the process of scaling carbon removal and how that relates to your guys' decision-making on those investments? 
specifically what I'd like to zero on is how far do you voluntary corporate commitments can take us? And at what point does the business case for this or the opportunities rely upon government or other kinds of direct procurement from the state to make this market really work for everybody involved? Yeah, you're right to segment it with a near term and longer term outlook because they are different. In the near term, I think the challenge is really the supply being the main constraint. You know, there's already around 10 figures of spend from folks like the Frontier Funds at Mansport that are out there looking for carbon removal credits and the IRA and this new juiced up 45% is really supercharging demand. So right now in the near term, demand doesn't seem to be a problem. I think it will only continue to grow as carbon offsets broadly and carbon markets come under scrutiny. And for good reason, there's quite a chronic quality issue with carbon. In short, that they're you know, not doing what they're saying, right? They're not actually making a meaningful difference for emission climate change. So I think in the medium term, a lot of the demand for carbon offsets and for going carbon neutral will transition from planting trees or protecting forests to high quality carbon removal because it puts a high fidelity, verifiable technology and solution that does remove two from the atmosphere permanently and put it back on the ground, which is what we have to do. So in the medium term, I think there'll be demand in the form. Again, I think the supply will remain a challenge even into the medium term. There's a lot of science and tech risking to be done. There's a lot of really insane innovation that's happening, but still all of this is this stuff and the scale that is required is going to be fairly unprecedented from a technological standpoint. But there's also other obstacles, just like regulatory obstacles and bottlenecks that is really holding back supply. In the US, from a regulatory standpoint, it's actually harder to put carbon back underground than it is to pull it up. And so until we have some of these regulatory bottlenecks and obstacles out of the way and dismantle them, then supply is going to be an issue. Long term, when we're talking about the scales that we hope we'll get to and what the scientists will get to, I think demand then becomes more of an issue. And the way that I see that potentially being solved is that the governments play a bigger and bigger role. I've seen it referred to as plumbing for the atmosphere and that it's providing a societal good. And to the point I made earlier about this is trillions of dollars of spend needed to stabilize the atmosphere. It's hard to imagine getting there without the weight of the government getting behind it. So yeah, near term, supply will be the main challenge, not demand. Long term, I think demand will, will need to come from government for it to be meaningful for climate change. Super interesting. I don't think that I had recognized fully how there is a market for these offsets, not just from these new commitments from big tech companies and like that, but just from the fact that offsets are a thing and there are people who go out and procure them. And we've known the fidelity problems with those as a product. And so carbon removal players, their near-term market is uh, not just new big tech companies who want to procure specifically carbon removal, but it's anybody who's interested in offsets in general. Yeah. And to be clear, you know, a lot of offsets, are rightly criticized as greenwashing because it's just a big corporation who wants to say that they're having an impact, but really they're spending a few dollars on some trees that were never going to be cut down anyway. But there are plenty of folks, there's probably billions of dollars worth of demand from people and organizations that truly do want to offset their footprint. They'll do what they can to decarbonize, but the part that is a little trickier to do with this technology, they look to offsets. 
And so I think a lot of that demand will flow into removal because, as I said, it is truly doing what they hope it to do. Building off of that, Alex, we know that different organizations are looking at the offsets and different senses. And one example, the science-based target initiative says that any corporate should try to reduce their emissions 90% by themselves within their own organization. And the rest 10% can probably be offset. Uh, what is your carbon's point of view? And I know that different organizations are at different points. Some say 50-50, some say, you know, 90-10, some say 100-0. What do you guys think would be the role of offsets and how will it grow? Yeah, generally we're of the belief that the more you can decarbonize, the better, right? The more you can directly abate and mitigate your emissions, the easier it is for everyone. It's far, far, far easier to avoid a ton of CO2 being emitted in the atmosphere than it is to take it back out. And, you know, we actively invest in quite a bit of technology and solutions to do that. But we do recognize that in some sectors, particularly those that you call the, the hard to abate sectors, things like cement, steel, aviation, the technology is just not there yet. I mean, it, there's a lot of exciting innovation being developed, but there's nothing at scale that can really take big chunks out of some of these slices of the emissions pie just yet. And so until we can meaningfully scale those technologies and bring down the cost, then carbon removal is our minds the way to offset that. We don't have a hard calculus on what that percentage should be, but as a general rule, you should always try to abate first and then remove second. There's no world in which we can get to that negative without abatement playing the lion's share of the role, but removal is what we see as the residual emissions, if you will, those that are the trickiest. And there'll be quite a bit of residual emissions, I think, that will stick around for a while. And so we need removal to, to make up for it. Yeah. And speaking of those technologies and sectors, which are hard to abate and probably would be the biggest ones that we have to tackle, are there any specific sectors, areas that keep you awake and thinking? Yeah. Lots of nights spent awake, but fortunately it's often because I'm just excited about some of these opportunities and some of these solutions. I think there's some really meaningful stuff being done. And so it's the excitement, fortunately, that keeps me awake. So I'm not too upset about it. The best part of my job is that they let me be a generalist. You know, they, I'm free to explore the curiosities of the week. So I get to see the entire landscape of opportunities in climate tech, everything from lab-grown meat to electric airplanes to carbon-free cement and steel. The opportunities that I've been thinking about lately are largely in the adaptation space. You know, it's hard not to when you see the devastation that happens in places like Pakistan and more recently in Nigeria with flooding. But also I think that the investment opportunity for climate resilience and adaptation is so overlooked and so undervalued. And because we know climate change is erasing GDP, we know it's choking supply chains and shuttering factories. And so investing in resilience and adaptation offers quick returns, large markets. And this is the key part. It offers really motivated customers who put self-interest over ideology. You know, it doesn't matter if a farmer believes in climate change or not, but they're going to pay for solutions that help them deal with the consequences of drought or wildfires or floods. And so for that reason, I think adaptation resilience is really, really undervalued and underinvested. I think there's a lot of really exciting opportunities there. The other spaces that I like to look at still a little overlooked is emerging markets. You know, as I said earlier, to the largest populations, the fastest growing economies, where 
clean energy and clean solutions often just make pure economic sense in a way that they don't in, in some more developed markets. So places like India, Brazil, Indonesia, Mexico, I'm constantly looking for opportunities in these markets and happy to share that we are doing more and more investments in each of them. So those are the opportunities that they get me fired up. It's thing that my foray into climate or my volcano moment, I was working in Odisha, which is a coastal state in India, working in agriculture. And there was a super cyclone there that came about. I was inside a building, the glasses shattered, all of that. But I was still safe inside. The next day morning when we went on a tour, all, all the crops that the farmers had been growing for that season were just completely wiped off. No one had any kind of crop insurance. And it just felt so real. And that's when I realized that adaptation is just getting so much lesser attention than it should. The insurance is an interesting one in particular because it's not often thought about as a climate solution or, or technology or lever. But I think it's obviously a massive, I don't know, $6 trillion thank you to the global economy. And you know it needs to evolve for two reasons. One, that they are in peril, right? Their models all rely on the past and the precedent to predict the future, which you no longer really do in a changing. And two, they have so many assets on the book that are just liabilities. So I think that insurance companies are going to have a reckoning. But also, there's a lot of really interesting stuff that can be done with, with insurance to enhance resilience and adaptation. We have companies like a group called Cloud Street that, that does analytics for underwriting of parametric insurance for folks that could never would never otherwise have access to insurance. Groups like refugee camps in the Congo River Basin. So they're unlocking insurance products that are probably the most important factor in establishing resilience against climate disasters. So I think insurance is actually one of the spaces I'm most interested in. That's fascinating. I've always wondered what drives that overlooking of adaptation as opposed to mitigation. And I thought for some time that maybe the explanation was that there just was going to be less money in adaptation. And I think what you're drawing out here nicely is that you just got to think a little more creatively about where the money is in adaptation and then the opportunities come to be. But at the same time, we know that climate investments right now are not split evenly between emerging economies and the developed world. Heavy slant towards Europe. North America, China as well. It's really the one exception in the developing world. Do you think that when you look at where capital flows and where venture is really focusing its attention, are we going to be developing the solutions that the developing world needs through the way that we're doing things right now? Or do you see the need for a different mindset or different sets of approaches for making this transition more equitable across that gap? Yes and no. There's certainly going to be a gap in funding for early stage innovation in some of these markets. There is not a lot of capital flowing to them. There are innovations that are being developed, but they just don't have access to the same, the same resources. And that's both novel innovations, but also tweaking existing innovations to fit market context. So there's definitely a gap there. That being said, in a lot of these markets, the challenge is really going to be financing the deployment of existing and mature technologies. And so we know how to get most of the way there globally, you know, electrifying the power sector and then using clean, affordable electricity to decarbonize the other sectors. So that's things like transportation and industry and housing, et cetera. And so from that perspective, a lot of the financing gap really is less venture capital and it's more project finance. It's a lot of these bigger and bigger pools of capital. Because venture capital is mostly to fund early stage innovation. 
And what's really needed in many of these markets is just deployment of the existing technologies. That being said, a lot of the venture capital funding that is flowing into technologies and solutions in developed markets like the US and Europe can be transferred into a lot of these other markets in some very exciting ways. For example, you don't see a whole lot of solutions being developed for low carbon fertilizer in emerging markets. They're more focused on just developing fertilizer or you know, just expanding the supply of fertilizer. That's the main issue, particularly after Russia's invasion in Ukraine. But there's a lot of solutions being developed in the US, for example, that could be easily deployed in a lot of these emerging markets. And I would think it would make quite a bit of difference. So it's hard to say yes or no. There's certainly a gap, but I think there's a lot of transferability. But there's always obviously more resources that can flow into market-specific solutions and contexts. From there, just talking about the developed regions, let's say the US, and when you look at the capital allocation, do you think there is any lopsided difference between, let's say, earlier stage and later stage? Yes, there is, but not in terms of dollar amount, I wouldn't say. It's less about dollar amount that worries me. It's more where the dollars are flowing. And I, you know, it makes sense if, if they're flowing to mature and de-risk technologies, things like electric vehicles and electric vehicle charging and, and solar panels and I guess to a lesser extent hydrogen, but there's still not enough funding for some of these other decarbonization solutions, things like fertilizer, cement, steel, aviation. So there's quite a bit of money flowing. We need quite a bit more, but I'm less concerned with the total aggregate amount of capital because I think the opportunity will become more and more obvious and capital always finds a way to meet the opportunity. But my concern is more where they flow to. You know, it, it, a lot of it's just going to things that I feel are oversaturated in a way. You know, there's quite a few EV and EV charging companies out there in public markets and far fewer low carbon planes or industry. Why do you think that is? Just risk. It's just risk. I think a lot of public markets, a lot of more mature investors, you know, they're fundamentally about cash flows, about risk profiles, and a lot of the technology and solutions that we need are still far off from getting to the maturity that these investors want to see. You know, there's a lot of solutions that aren't even making revenue yet, and they won't be for some time. And so it's far less bankable for the later stage investors. Zooming out to, or maybe zooming in, depending on how you frame it, back to your thoughts and your relationship to venture and what's brought you here. We got a lot of listeners who are thinking about venture. Is it right for them? You say you're climbing person first, then venture. So it's been a process for you to figure out whether venture is your place. Can you share what you think has helped you in thinking about that? You know, How should our listeners think about whether venture is the place that they should go? Yeah, personally, I find it really rewarding and filling and meaningful because of two reasons in particular. The first is that I always struggled to pick one area to focus on. In grad school, there was so many interesting things being built and solutions being suggested that I always feared the opportunity cost of focusing on any given one. It's like if I choose, you know, low carbon cement for the next 10 years of my life, how do I know that's going to pay off? You know, technology changes so quickly. And so I worried about the opportunity cost of going too deep on any one given sector. And so I love this job because I get to explore everything all at once. And it's very exciting. It also is rewarding and fulfilling because it's a job in which you can see the tangible impacts of your work fairly quickly. Your autonomy and decision-making leads to changes and outcomes in a way that 
it's harder to see or to realize in, in our industries and sectors. For context, you know, I studied international policy and I thought I was going to be in the policy world for a while. And I still do think it's the most powerful lever for change in a climate context and otherwise. But I always struggled with the timelines, you know, just day to day, staying motivated by focusing on one issue at hand that may or may not change at a multi-decade pace. That was tough for me. I think I needed quicker feedback loops, quite honestly. And so for folks looking to get in, I would say is think about whether or not you have that one space or sector or technology or solution that you really love and can, can see yourself working on for years at a time. And if so, then you might be better off working for a climate company or policy shop that touches that space or whatever it may be. But venture is great for folks that like the breadth and can sometimes honestly struggle with the depth. That's not to say you can't go deep and with venture because there's very specialized funds. But for me, it was a question of breadth over depth. And I was kind of more of a breadth guy than I was a depth guy. But, you know, sometimes you have that itch and you really got to go deep on this one solution. And I really admire it when I see it. I think those are the people that ultimately are the ones making things happen. Having that perspective is very useful. And it's one of the first times that I've heard when asked this question. Usually we talk about, oh, what is your day like? All of that. But I think this is super helpful. Well, we're almost at time. So rounding this out a bit, Alex, what would be your top three podcast, newsletter, or book rep- recommendations? I do a lot of podcasting, actually. And I love them all. The one that I enjoy the most, likely because it's most relevant to me in my day-to-day, is a podcast called Catalyst by Shell Khan. He's actually a climate tech DC himself. Relatedly, the newsletter I follow are from my good friends, Sophie Perdom and Kim Zhu. They are the writers of Climate Tech Venture Capital, CTVC. It's a great newsletter, whether or not you're interested in DC, but more so interested in climate tech, just kind of an overview of the entire landscape and and all the happenings. And they do some great deep dives, really thoughtful and and well-researched on certain sectors. So if you ever want to get smart on one particular space or solution, then that's the place to do it. And then last day, I would probably suggest Bloomberg Green. I think they're by far the most informative and well-researched and well-written organization that covers climate. They really focus on the important topics. They get all the right guests. They have really, really thoughtful analysis, super wide-ranging, very well done. That's our show for today. Thanks again to Alex for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Lower Carbon Capital and what they're up to, you can visit their website at lowercarboncapital.com. And if you like this conversation, do spread the good word online. You can find us and tag us on Instagram at The Warden Current and on Twitter at Warden Current. So this has been Ned for The Current and see you next time.